Hey, it's Martine. We want to thank you, our Post Reports listeners, by offering a special discount on a digital subscription to The Washington Post. Get unlimited access to our website and apps for less than a dollar a week. Sign up at postreports.com offer. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungman from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, June 18th. Today, Trump's defense pick withdraws from consideration. A proposed plan for mass migrant deportations and a memorable ride on a golden escalator. Patrick Shanahan was the acting uh, Secretary of Defense. He had been in this position in an unconfirmed role for a record amount of time since January. Aaron Davis is an investigative reporter with The Post. And a month ago, the White House uh, said he's going to be our nominee, we're going to put him up permanently, and then they never submitted the paperwork. So for four weeks, we've been waiting for him to actually officially on paper be the nominee, and he never was. Today, President Trump made an announcement about Patrick Shanahan. He did. In a tweet, he said that he would he was withdrawing his nomination and would not be the next uh, Secretary of Defense. And so what do we know about why he is withdrawing his nomination? Well, we know a lot, and we've known a lot about this backstory that's been going on with, with Patrick Shanahan and his family for many months. And it's a very sad tale, really. It's a, there's a, a series of is he uses this word a lot, tragic episodes of domestic violence involving his now ex-wife, one of them involving him and her making allegations against each other, and another one after they are separated where uh, an extremely violent episode occurs where his oldest son, then 17, uh, is, is in a fight, a verbal fight with the ex-wife and appears to have snapped and picks up a baseball bat and takes the baseball bat to her, mm-hmm. fracturing her skull, breaking her arm, leaving her in a pool of blood. It's an awful episode. And how did you find this out? Well, uh, we were doing the normal steps you do, vetting a new cabinet member back in January when it was announced he was taking over for General Mattis. And, you know, one of the things you do in this process, you look at all the court files, and so you pull the divorce file. And in this case, it turned out to be this mammoth 1,500-page file, and we started going through it and started seeing these, uh, you know, these stories. So, you know, we actually focused first very tightly on this, this incident involving the ex-wife and the, and the son because it wasn't just that this happened. It was that Patrick Shanahan then a vice president at Boeing, uh, had flown down from where he was working in Seattle to Florida and took four days between when he arrived and, and met his son and then turned him over to authorities after this happened. And so mm. we were looking at, was this an appropriate amount of time for him to do that? He spent days assembling a defense team, putting his son up in a, in a hotel while there was an active police search for his son. Hmm. Now, so there was at least an appearance that he was trying to cover up for his son. That was the allegation made by his ex-wife in a court file, that Patrick was hiding his son from police during this period. And so we really tried to look, talk to every police officer mentioned in every file, you know, went through everybody who was involved in the search, went to people who were at the, at the crime scene. 
And it was hard to really make a judgment on that. We talked to the prosecutor, we talked to the judge. You know, this was a four-day period, but it was also over Thanksgiving holiday. And so one of those days was a holiday where the attorneys weren't calling him back. Another day was a day that the police officer was out of the office and nobody could get a hold of him. So was this an appropriate amount of time? We never could kind of come down squarely on this was right or not. So we set it aside for a while. And what ultimately happened to his son? Was he was he prosecuted for what he was alleged to have done to his mom? He was. He was originally charged with uh, aggravated battery and tampering with a witness because in addition to not only bludgeoning his mother, he also then pulled the phone cord out of the wall so that his 12-year-old younger brother could not call 911. And so mm-hmm. there was a tampering uh, with a victim charge as well, both felonies. What did What did Shanahan say about the fact that these really awful episodes from his life um, have now become public. Bad things that happen to good families. Mm-hmm. I mean, <clears throat> in recent days, Patrick Shanahan had gotten to the point where he realized this was going to eventually come out and uh, there was going to be a full accounting of this publicly. And at some point in time, he realized, you know, had to put it in his words. And so he did agree to speak with us um, last night. And it was the first time probably he had had to answer questions like that by a reporter and um, and to maybe begin to visualize what this was going to look like uh, in front of a, you know, a, a confirmation hearing. Quite frankly, it's difficult to relive, relive that moment. Um, I have never believed Will's attack on his mother was an act of self-defense or in any way uh, justified. Um, you know, for that matter, uh, you know, I don't believe violence is appropriate ever. And certainly, um, there's never any justification for attacking someone with a baseball bat. Isn't this something that should have been disclosed as he was first considering being the nominee for Secretary of Defense? From what we know, this was something that was at least partially litigated in the course of his first FBI background check when he became Deputy Secretary of Defense. The chairman and the ranking member on the Senate Armed Services Committee that is now charged with doing this had not been privy to that FBI background check. There was other things that they were taking a more in-depth look at this, and there were questions, is this the reason that he's not being cleared? He, he did say in his interview with me that he had been asked questions by the FBI about this. So you mentioned that there had also been accusations between Shanahan and his wife of domestic violence. Do we know what happened there? We have a pretty good sense from this divorce file, which I, you know, very long, 1,500 pages. You know, there's this narrative in the file that after 24 years of marriage, things were not well. And they culminate with this awful episode in August of 2010 in which Patrick Shanahan and his then-wife were having an argument about one of their children. Uh, He goes upstairs and says that he's going to lay down, closes his eyes, and by his account, his then-wife comes in and punches him in the face while he's laying there with his eyes closed. He says that he didn't react kind of on purpose to that, and that seemed to further enrage her, and she started taking all of his clothes and throwing them out the window. But she alleged that he had punched her in the stomach. He denied that to police. When police arrived, they took Patrick Shanahan and Kimberly Shanahan to their own separate parts of the house and interviewed them both. And under Seattle law, police came back and said, uh, we find that Kimberly was the aggressor and they arrested her. 
that's the beginning of the end for their marriage. Uh, he soon files for divorce. She moves to Florida, gets custody of the kids. And then that leads to about a year and a half later, the second episode where the ex-wife is fighting with a 17-year-old son. And after a couple hours, again, the, uh, the baseball bat was too close to reach. So we were looking at this episode, and then in the intervening months, something else happened, which is that the Inspector General's office at the DOD, at the Department of Defense, put out a pretty lengthy investigation of how the military deals with non-sexual domestic violence and found a lot of fault with how they do it. And this all flowed from two years ago when Patrick Shannon first took over as deputy Secretary of Defense, that's like the number two spot he held for a long time, that the church shooting in Texas where 26 people were shot at the hands of someone who had been discharged because of a domestic violence episode when he was in the military. And so the inspector general found that out of a 219 cases that they looked at, 180 of the times, uh, the military was never reporting to civilian authorities these domestic issues and convictions that should have precluded them from buying firearms after they left the military. And so then you have advocates for battered women coming forward and saying, why isn't the Secretary of Defense's office taking this very seriously? And so then you look at, well, given his personal history with this, there's a new relevance to this story. And we started looking at it again. So some people have made accusations that Shanahan might have been soft on issues of domestic violence because it's something that he's experienced in his family life. That was a question. And that was a question we took to him. And it uh, it was actually his own words on a related topic that uh, kind of put this in the minds of a lot of people in this sphere who work with battered women. And that was when there was a survey last month about uh, sexual assault and sexual harassment in the military came out. It's found rising numbers of both of those. And he came out very strong saying this is not, you know, the, the ethos of the military. But he has still hadn't said anything about the, the non-sexual part of it. And so it seemed to be this dichotomy between the way he was approaching allegations of sexual harassment or sexual assault in the military versus this domestic violence side. So now that Shanahan is not going to be the Secretary of Defense, where does that leave the Department of Defense and the Trump administration? Well, the acting Secretary of Defense there, Patrick Shanahan, was planning to leave this weekend for a series of meetings with NATO next week. Obviously, we've, we're deploying the middle of deploying more troops to the Middle East uh, amid rising tensions with Iran. There is still a you know very unsettled situation in Venezuela. This uh, puts the, the Department of Defense kind of back at square one for a, a new leader. And there will be a new acting secretary of defense. Uh, but in the meantime, there will be several more acting uh, deputy and undersecretaries because there are uh, several dozen positions down the line that have not been filled with permanent nominees under the Trump administration, as there have been in other agencies uh, and throughout his cabinet. There's, by some accounts, a real vacuum of, of leadership during the, you know, a very tense moment. Aaron Davis is an investigative reporter with The Post. So last night at almost 9.30, you know, the president tweeted that next week ICE will start the process of removing millions of illegal aliens who have illicitly found their way into the United States. Maria Sacchetti covers immigration for The Post. She says that this tweet came as a surprise to her. And based on the reporting that The Post has done since, it also came as a surprise to lots of people at ICE. We know that the administration has been talking about removing family units. So that is what we came to understand, is that is what the president meant. And this is something that 
officials had been planning for quite some time. And in the discussion over it, the internal discussions over it and the disagreement, a part of the reason that ICE Acting Director Ron Vitiello left and so did Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen. Because this is something that Trump had been wanting to do for a while. And Vitiello and Kirsten Nielsen had both said that it was more complicated and more logistically challenging than the president was was giving it credit for. Right. It wasn't that they wouldn't do it. They just had some questions about how it would be carried out and that sort of thing. So what do we know about what they're actually planning to do? What we know so far is that the plan is to target family members, so parents and children with final deportation orders, people who had their day in court or at least it was scheduled and perhaps they didn't show up, have a final order and now it's time to execute that order. And the question is, will they find them? Uh, how will they find them? And what will they do with the children? I mean, it'd be like half the family units are probably children. So, And this would be happening theoretically in cities around the country at a relatively large scale. Correct. I mean, thousands, you know, I mean, he says millions, but that seems implausible at this moment. But it seems that at least thousands have been part of the plan. What would be the concerns with conducting a big operation like this? Well, I think um, it's always the case that safety is the biggest concern. Again, these are children, you know, family units tend to have much younger children. A recent Homeland Security report said that 73% of the family unit children were 12 and under. That's totally different from an older teenager. Uh, These are little kids often. So how are they going to be picked up? Are they part of the target? We don't know. And, you know, how will they apprehend them? You know, logistically, will there be buses? We know there are lots of final orders in Houston, in Atlanta, in New York, Los Angeles, other places. So what will happen there? What do we know about why President Trump wants to do this and specifically targeting families, families with with oftentimes young children? Well, families are the dominant news stream of migrants over the U.S.-Mexico border, and it's been actually a very successful tactic. I mean, some are legitimately fleeing for their lives, and others are coming to join relatives here in the United States. And the word has gotten out in Central America that if you do come with a child, then you will most likely be released and pretty quickly. And the volume has been such that the Border Patrol facilities are overwhelmed, so they're moving people as soon as possible. And so what the Trump administration is trying to do is take a multi-pronged approach, right? So they're trying to stop people from even getting through Mexico. They're trying to stop, get Mexico to stop them at the Guatemalan border. They're trying to stop them at the southern U.S. border with Mexico and, and working with Mexico to do they're trying to turn them back in multiple disincentives. And then now they're trying to put the final piece in place, which is, okay, we gave you your day in court, and now we're going to send you back. But there are a lot of questions about these final orders of removal, like were immigrants in court? Did they have a fair chance to know about these hearings? Will they try to reopen their cases? But part of the impetus for this is kind of a shock and awe campaign, right? That that it's to make people not want to come into the country because they will see images and video of families being rounded up and sent out of the United States. What the Trump administration wants to show is that they will deport family members. They want to send a signal back to Central America that, look, we actually will go to your house and, you know, arrest your parent and child and we'll send them back. I think that would be stunning to a lot of people. Does ICE actually have the capacity to carry out something like this? 
Well, that, that's a very good question. We're trying to find out the answer to that ourselves. I mean, they've been saying that they need extra money, that they're in trouble, that they have a lot of people they need to detain. So it's not clear to me what resources they have and the president d- didn't say. And it seems kind of bizarre, too, that, that President Trump is tweeting about this big enforcement action before it happens. It's just unthinkable. Some officials say, you know, it's just if, if someone did that when inside the agency, they would be fired. I mean, you're putting people's um, lives in danger. You're disrupting what um, an operation that takes months to prepare for. If you're about to carry out a secret mission, you don't tip off people ahead of time. Then they can scatter and then you won't find anyone. Um, last year, Oakland Mayor Libby Schaffs uh, tipped off her community that there was going to be an ice raid. And um, and and President Trump, you know, threatened to, you know, investigate her for criminal prosecution, you know, and people attacked her saying, um, you know, that you put agents' lives in danger. You know, we you prevented us from arresting people. So now all these folks know that ICE is coming for them. People could scatter or hide or defend themselves. And there's certainly safety concerns um, on all sides. Do you think that the objective here is more to get as many migrant families out of the country as possible, or that it's more for appearances to look like the U.S. is getting tougher on immigration enforcement? It seems to be an attempt at a show of force. And President um, said that he wanted to deport millions of people. The United States is not deporting millions of people. They didn't deport millions of people even at their peak under Obama. We have 11 million undocumented immigrants in this country. And typically every year, 2 to 4% are deported. Um, a lot come back. It's a multi-billion dollar enterprise. And as far as the, the results it's seeking, I mean, those are the numbers. They're pretty low. However, the average undocumented immigrant has been in this country for 15 years. So when you uproot someone from a family like that, you're uprooting the parents of American citizens. You're you're really sending, you know, just a shock of fear through an entire community. So it, it, it has a lot of shockwaves um, when, when you ha- carry out an enforcement um, initiative like this. In this case, we're talking about family units who have arrived more recently um, and perhaps have spent months in the United States and have a final order of removal. And so the president's point is, look, the, you know, these folks are being smuggled into the country and they're coming as families because they know they'll get released. So we need to enforce the law and we need to show that we're enforcing the law. And this is something that would show that we're doing that. So when it comes down to it, what are the chances that you think that we will see something like this actually begin to be carried out next week? It, it depends on what the president's going for. You know, if he's going for the public demonstration, you know, the show of arresting a few dozen families, you know, showing that to Central America, showing that to the United States. You could do that probably pretty easily. But to address, you know, arrest thousands, um, millions, just it's hard to it's hard to say exactly what they'll do. Maria Sacchetti covers immigration for The Post. And now, one more thing. As Donald Trump prepares to launch his re-election campaign on Tuesday night, 
a look back at the stranger-than-fiction moment that kicked off his 2016 campaign. When people think of Donald Trump launching his bid, they think of him coming down this golden escalator, and it is now this kind of iconic moment that represents everything gaudy and gilded. That's Ashley Parker. And I cover the White House for The Washington Post. So this past Sunday, June 16th, is the exact four-year anniversary from when Trump first launched his presidential campaign on June 16th of 2015. So anyhow, Donald Trump has decided to announce his bid. And if you're going to announce a presidential bid, you often go to a state like Iowa or New Hampshire. And logic tells you you do it surrounded by hay bales or you do it at your childhood home to tell your up by your bootstrap story. And Trump, of course, is going to do it at his gilded Manhattan skyscraper. And he wanted to come down. He was going to do it in the atrium. And he was insistent on coming down this golden escalator to do it. And everyone on his team said, no, like that will look amateurish. That will not look remotely presidential. You know, you you cannot come down the escalator. At one point, they were debating his former personal attorney and fixer, Michael Cohen, who it's worth noting is now serving time in jail, but was suggesting maybe they bring in live elephants and women in bikinis. So you kind of always had that same circus-like showman spectacle. And, you know, to their credit, this ragtag team of campaign operatives, you know, someone kind of stood up and said, no, he's he's running for president. We want this to look professional. And, you know, he may come down the golden escalator, but he is going to stand in front of blue pipe and draping. He is going to wear a suit and a tie, and he's going to do this in front of American flags. And that is what he did. I am officially running for president of the United States, and we are going to make our country great again. Ashley Parker is a White House reporter for The Post. That's it for today's episode. If you like listening to Post Reports and want to know how to support the work that we do here, please consider subscribing to The Washington Post. We're offering listeners a special discount on a digital subscription. Get unlimited access to our website and apps for less than a dollar a week. Sign up at postreports.com offer. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.